Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. The trailer opens with some backstory, pretty much telling the story of the uh, of the 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 prequel of space seed right yeah right this is a movie that really kind of needs some setup do you think well certainly for the trailer 
Um, I, I think it helps with the movie too. I know I had not seen Space Seed when I first saw this. I mean, at the young age of 10, I don't know if I, it really mattered. I think I kind of figured it out. I mean, I think you'll figure it out, but boy, after rewatching Space Seed and then this, I'm like, man, that really is a benefit having that oh. story in my head. Oh, it's a total package. Yeah. I, I really I think you're absolutely right once you do see it but I don't I don't think it suffers at all I think once the and you know obviously talk about the film but I think once you're into the narrative of the film it's it moves pretty quickly and you get caught up pretty you know pretty well I don't know I think it does it does a good job to set up the imagery that we're going to see uh, I find myself having seen the film thinking well that's kind of a waste of airtime it's one of those trailers from the early 80s that uh, feels very, it's a dated trailer. Like the style is very dated. It's like, let's cut a few uh, moments from this action scene and together with this action scene and just kind of, you know, it, it just kind of gives you a bunch of action. But it's it's not where you're blending shots from all over the film. You're really taking a bunch of shots from one battle and kind of making a little t- kind of like a 30 second battle. <laughs> and you kind of mm-hmm. got to another one. And it just kind of moves like that. It's not um, not overly thrilling. I mean, I'm sure at the time it was effective enough. You know, people, especially people who had seen Star Trek, the motion picture, and might have been a little um, put off by the pacing and maybe the lack of uh, kind of adventure and the types of stories that they experienced on the TV show, this already seemed like, well, okay, we're tying it um, more directly to the TV show. We've got Khan from the TV show. There are battles. There's there's you know space action. There's multiple ships shooting at each other. There's real action now. And so I think for people who really wanted that aspect of, um, of the series to be brought to the silver screen... I think that the trailer is setting it up for them. Well, and don't forget the massive fan service that is the best hero reveal of the Star Trek series. I mean, the backlit Kirk as the wall separates, right? And you don't know what the context is there, but we knew what Kirk looked like from the last movie, and he looks entirely different here. And uh, we reveal the uniforms, we reveal the walk, we reveal, we know who that silhouette is as he is intercut between other sequences of, of action and that is uh, that is a gift in this trailer if you are a fan, uh, and and certainly a dramatic way to introduce, uh, you know, the the captain if you're not. Another thing that I thought was interesting, um, there are rumors that a, a certain creator of the show um, had leaked the fact that Spock was going to die mm-hmm. um, in this because he was a little miffed at having been kind of pushed out of it. And um, and also of some of the angles that they were taking with the story, including the aspect that Spock was going to die. And so he kind of leaked it. And as fans were expected to do, they got rather riled up. The trailer is really light on Spock. Like there's really not much other than some shots of him, but it's not a Spock heavy trailer. It really mm-hmm. focuses on the relationship between Kirk and Khan. It really does, and that's where it should be. Uh, and and I think that back to the point about the backstory that we have uh, over the blue wavy, the blue wavy things in space. Um, you know, we we actually have uh, evidence that a trailer can be cut together without revealing who the the nemesis is because we did it with Khan. Uh, you know, now forty years later, <laughs> right? Um, the the trailer that we're going to watch in. Um, uh, the next weeks. con yeah. or in a few weeks yeah the next the next con 
is um, is just that trying to hide the fact that it was con and it still right. is an energetic trailer so sure um, I think I think for me the biggest lesson is I need more backlights <laughs> with smoke-filled rooms <laughs> I want every time I walk into a room I want to be backlit and I want to have smoke just pumped everywhere hallelujah here here beyond the darkness beyond the human evolution is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show the second in our star trek series with nicholas meyer's take on the crew of the enterprise in 1982 star trek 2 the wrath of khan before we get into that you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on twitter and facebook at the next reel and want to join us for an episode Support The Next Reel on Patreon to automatically be entered into our regular listener's choice drawings. Check us out over at patreon.com slash the next reel. And with that, Roddenberry is out. What? Or Bennett is in. Oh. End of an era, Andy. Kind of crazy. It it it's uh, it was crazy, especially for the fans. I don't really remember it that much. All I remember is uh, this was this was the pew pew shoot 'em up Star Trek that I uh, I started with. Me too. It's my second favorite Star Star Trek, uh, and I love this Star Trek because it is so much the story of of human issues, right? Of age and of deep friendship and of great loss and and um, and this this sort of these human kind of um, practical. Uh, issues that we deal with, these emotional issues that we deal with, and the fact that it's set in space it ends up being largely gloss. Like, it could be anywhere, and, and I think that's a sign of just why it works as a, as a great film, uh, because it, it is a story that is, that is particularly human, and uh, it, it's portrayed well, that it's in space is just exciting. Yeah, it really is, and it's, uh, there's just something very... Um... Uh, strong about the core characters in this particular story. I, I feel that the team behind this really tapped into um, the Kirk, Spock, McCoy uh, trio and really just kind of hit it uh, really strongly out of the park as far as how those three relate to each other and connect to each other and what they what they do well when they're working with each other and just kind of how their personalities are and everything. I think that those guys are just so great in this, particularly uh, Kirk and Spock. Uh, obviously, that becomes a very um, critical 
aspect of this. But I think there is a really strong relationship in that aging process that we get between Kirk and McCoy as they kind of have more of those uh, conversations about it. I, I just I like the way that these elements are tapped into for this. And I think that there there's another aspect of this story that I think is a very interesting one that um, I, I you know I would have to really rack my brains to remember if it comes up much in other Star Trek episodes uh, of the TV series or um, even into the films, but really the story of revenge. I mean, you've got such an interesting antagonist here with with Khan Noonien Singh who, um, back from the Space Seed episode, gets left by Kirk um, on uh, SETI Alpha 5. And, uh, and 20 years later, 15, however many years later, uh, you know, that he accidentally, uh, Chekhov on a different ship, accidentally kind of, you know, saves him. And then he's just, he's fueled by this intense rage to bring down Kirk. And, you know, it's, it's one of those interesting stories where it's very much like this is a, an Ahab sort of story. You know, he could very easily escape. He's got a ship as his, uh, as I don't know what you'd call that guy, his first mate kind of points out. He's like, we've got a ship. Let's get out of here. And, and his response is, Kirk tasks me. He tasks me. And it's like he has nothing he can focus on other than the red rage he sees when he thinks about Kirk. Which is so interesting, too. Uh, and you, you just watched Space Seed um, last week, right? You mentioned it. Yep. And I, I think the end of Space Seed is fascinating in the context of this film. Because the end of Space Seed, nobody's really upset. No, yeah. Right? Everybody seems to get it. Khan, in fact, is is really kind of looking forward to the opportunity of starting this civilization, right? So what he's mad about in this movie is not that that Kirk put him on this planet. It's that Kirk didn't check in again, that Kirk left him there uh, and, and never thought to, to, you know, go see how they were doing. Uh, and now that they survive, uh, you know, fueled by ego— um, you know, look how grand it is that I get to, to you know, reveal myself and show off that that I have uh, I've done all that I have done, even in this this you know catastrophic circumstance that you set unto us. Uh, and I think that's really interesting because the Spacey does not end with the kind of rage that is fueled in the film. And yet the film is able to pull off that transition. It is a pretty interesting ending of the show. And I, I when I watched, I'm like, gosh, they, they all seem kind of like friends. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, oh, this is great. We're going to go down and start our own colony on our planet. Even Spock is just like, it would be really interesting to come back one day, like in 100 years and <laughs> see what sort of uh, growth this, or what this seed has grown into. Yeah. And it's just very positive. And then it's like when you when you're in the film and you learn what happened to Khan and his people about how you know the SETI Alpha Six uh, I don't can't remember what happened it blew up and it threw off the you know the the balance of SETI Alpha Five and it turned into a, just this nightmare uh, wasteland of a planet to live on. Um, I was like, that is a really kind of fascinating story. And yes, it was so funny when he's just like, you never checked on me. Right? <laughs> like, like there was a responsibility, like we had a deal. Like when we smiled and nodded and you sent us down here, you were supposed to look after us, bud. And, <laughs> and that never happened. And of course it never happened because it's Kirk. And Kirk at the time uh, wasn't doing that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, he, you know, he did his five years and then he went and uh, got a desk job for a few years. So, Is this your favorite trek? It is. Um, um, although that being said, I'm excited to go through them all and see if that changes at all. I know. I know yours is Nemesis. 
<laughs> yeah, it is. I've decided that now whenever you bait me, I'll just say yes. Yep. yep. Nemesis, I love it. I'll I say something Nemesis. else every time then. Oh, God. That Tom Hardy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Hardy. Uh, like a bald Tom Hardy. This is a, a much more, uh, it, it feels like a, a little bit like Red October. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Nicholas Meyer really brought to the table kind of this nautical uh, sensibility. You know, he he said he I was not a Star Trek person at all. And he's like, I don't know how to direct that. And then he was kind of reading it. And he said it reminded him a lot of the Horatio Hornblower novels that he read when he was young. And he understood those. And he understood kind of the, the seafaring ways. And he's like, it's kind of like that. And I think that it's a really interesting aspect that uh, Star Trek films have taken maybe for a long time, I don't know if they're quite there still, but I feel like, um, you know, there was this nautical sensibility about all of the stuff going on here, especially toward the end as you get this essentially a sub a submarine battle. But um, it was interesting watching it and just kind of comparing it to how how Star Wars is so much about aerial stuff and fighting and like George Lucas was always inspired by like the dog fights and all that sort of thing. And here you are with Nicholas Meyer taking the helm of this, and it does feel so much more like a captain at sea. And I thought that was a really interesting um, difference between these two franchises. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the Star Trek comparison is uh, uh, always apt. They always have windows to look out of, right? Mm -hmm. And in this film, we have this example of, you know, when the technology fails and you no longer have this giant view screen, what do you do? Uh, when you can't see outside this giant ship, it is it is a submarine battle, and I, you know I always find it funny that this you know seasoned Captain Kirk, Admiral Kirk, um, has to be reminded that there is a Z axis. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> Khan, he's quite intelligent, uh, but he's thinking in two dimensions. And oh, by the way, so are you. Uh, which is I always think that's it's pretty funny. Um, one of the uh, the people was talking about how when they were designing the ship for this series, they were talking to somebody in the space program and this person in the space program. I think this was actually when they were thinking about redesigning the ship for the first movie. And the person was just like, uh, you know, they're like, well, we need to make it look like the ships in Star Wars with all the little bits and pieces. And the ships are really bumpy because that helps with scale. So when you're working with models, you really get a better sense of scale. And the uh, the the other person was just like, no, you really don't want to have your ship like that because um, it's it's much safer to repair a ship from the inside than it is from the outside. So you want the outside of your ship to be really smooth and and all the access to the things that would need repair are on the inside of the ship. And so they decided to keep the uh, the Star Trek ships uh, smooth on the outside. And I thought that was a really interesting difference between the two. Because everything comes down to Jeffrey's tubes. Jeffrey's <laughs> tubes and panels, man. Everything. Is that what it is? That's right. Uh, this this film also uh, happens to be the source of um, a great many a nightmare. Um, yeah, it was tough. the The SETI eel uh, it was it was a tough sequence. I was afraid of earwigs yeah. for the longest time because I was convinced. I think somebody actually told me that they did what these things do, where they if you get them close to your ear, which is why they're called earwigs, by the way, because they will burrow into your brain and lay eggs. 
I, I believed that for a very long time. <laughs> God, I feel terrible for you. Uh, but I totally get it. Like, that's a very real fear and oh, nasty. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, what, did it surprise you? I mean, did, as you think back to it, right, 1982, good luck. Uh, but you think back to it, and you think back to the, uh, the original motion picture and the original series. I mean, the original series, uh, you know, the effects were not uh, all that adventurous. And, um, you know, lots of rubber suits and tribbles. But here we go. Here's a thing that actually goes into your brain, and they show it sneaking into the brain. Uh, is that a surprise for a Star Trek film? It certainly is a darker element, and I think it's something that it's not. Um, I, I don't think it's too horrifying for a you know ten year old viewer to take. I mean, it did give me nightmares. It was. Nightmares, Let's but, just say it was. <laughs> it's a, Maybe not. But it wasn't the thing. It wasn't the thing, you know. I mean, the thing was a you know much more horrifying sort of thing. This, I think, does have those elements, but um, at the same time, I oh, who am I kidding? It's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. It's <laughs> gross. It's it's really gross. Um, it it definitely it stuck with me, and and I I think it became sort of the 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 pin that kind of keeps this movie in the back of my mind. That that particular one. It's it is a. Uh, it's a fascinating film. It really is, um, you know, you want to talk a little bit more about the backstory and the eugenics war. Is that an important thing for you? Well, I just think it's really interesting that, you know, Khan, his backstory from the space seed, um, there, you know, he's a genetically modified being um, from Earth in the 90s. And there was this period, apparently, we uh, must have forgotten about it. But, you know, in the 90s that we were developing these genetically modified beings, they got so smart and intelligent and strong that they took over the planet and Khan was one of them and he ruled a great number of lands before uh, they all fought and then it sounds like he and his group after they defeated the planet they hopped into the botany bay and they took off and then they were in space sleep just like ripley for like 200 some years and before uh, kirk found them and rescued them um, but i just thought that was a really interesting backstory that it it ties to like our time, you know, but I mean, back in the 60s, I'm sure they thought, oh, yeah, 30 years from now, we were probably going to be designing genetically modified. <laughs> it's it, it's it's Uber's next product. Actually. <laughs> well, I guess you could say that we have Lance Armstrong. He's, <laughs> <laughs> He's almost there, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. That was, you know what, they're going to they're going to remake this movie. One day, line for line, <laughs> and just Lance cast Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, who will still be alive. That's right. Roddenberry was pushed out. Last movie didn't go all that well, and he became a, a, an executive uh, consultant and on this film. Yeah, and this was, uh, you know, he had written a sequel where they, again, go back in time to save JFK, I think. But, uh, yeah, I guess they're just like, you know what? No yeah. one wants to make that movie. Well, I think he's he was kind of a, a pushy guy, wasn't he? I mean, you know, with all the rewrites that he demanded on the first movie and it didn't do as well as they wanted to, even though it made a ton of money. I don't know why people said, oh, it performed so poorly. But, I, you know, I don't get that either. And in hindsight, yeah. the, the as, as good as we thought the film was last week, it really surprises me that he wasn't given more um, sort of credit on this film. Yeah, right. Uh, but it is interesting. It was handed over to Harv Bennett uh, over and and um, uh, I don't this Jack Swords Swords. I don't know about this Jack Swords. He doesn't have a lot going on in terms of his uh, his credit, but he does have a, a story credit on this or the screenwriting credit on this film. What do you know? Do you know about this guy? I don't. 
I, this is this is a name that just sort of floated by on the credits. I what I know is uh, that there were a number of people who had their hands in the script, and this had been written. Uh, five different drafts had been written, and at one point they were really struggling for somebody to direct it, and um, and they called in Nicholas Meyer, who hadn't done much at the time, certainly no spacey stuff. Well, I mean, Jack Swords was one of those guys who. You know, he was kind of a writer who was in the world of TV long before this, like in the 70s and to the 80s through the 90s. But it's just one of those guys who kind of wrote little things here and there. But, uh, and you know, he wrote a few episodes of Star Trek, I think. But I, I don't know. It's it's just one of those weird names to pop in. But, yeah, it's like, I don't know, Nick Meyer was a writer. I mean, a writer-director. He directed one film before this. It, it made me wonder well, why they did You have to just... say what that film is because it's one of also in my, it's easily in my top 50. Is it really? I've never oh. seen, I've never seen it. Is what's it? The uh, uh, time after time. Time after time. Yeah. Yes. Never seen. Yes, it. with Malcolm McDowell, Mary Steenburgen. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's the H. Uh, G. Wells, Jack the Ripper. I maybe it's a guilty pleasure, and I'm just blind to it. But um, I do, I do really like that film quite a bit. Um, and then this, and he was uh, he. Uh, so Bennett brought him over and said, uh, you know, let's talk about it. The way. Bennett and Meyer talk about this experience, that they all met, uh, that he handed over all five drafts, Meyer read all five drafts, and then called uh, Bennett over to his house and said, let's talk about this. They're sitting there talking at the house, and Bennett says, I hope we can come to a solution because if I don't have a script in 12 days, uh, ILM is not going to be able to guarantee effects for the film when we open. And Meyer said, "You're you, wait a minute, you already have the film scheduled like theaters are <laughs> booking the oh yes yes they are and we're going to need uh, we're going to need the script and so Meyer sat down and impressing everyone even Shatner even Nimoy who didn't want to be in the film at all uh and turned out um a draft in 12 days that everybody was largely on board with and that's Crazy. that's pretty impressive yeah uh, it's really impressive. Bennett had said earlier that he said, you know, after he sat down over three months and watched all of uh, the Trek that he could get his hands on, and he said Space Seed was the one that haunted me. He said, I knew that was the story uh, that we were going to need to complete. Um, interesting, speaking of costs, because, you know, you're right. They, they talk about how this uh, they, they needed to save money on this film because it was they were just taking a shot. It was a gamble, uh, which is a ridiculous thing in hindsight. Um, but uh, they they put this in the Paramount TV division instead of the film division, even knowing it was all it was always going to be a feature film. Uh, but they put it in the the TV division because they felt the TV folks could do it more cheaply. Well, and you hear them talking about it, and you know the the set designers, like the people in the art department, were just like, "Oh yeah, we we're just walking around the studio picking things out of people's dumpsters because you know everyone else who when they finish something they just chuck it all." And we were like, "Hey, let's take this and make a mold out of this, and we can turn it into this wall, and we'll put something on the back, and then it's the other wall." I'm like all these guys were, this is this is like when I'm working on projects. <laughs> That's aspirational filmmaking, Andy. It's very funny. Very funny. Uh, this film is also noted as the first uh, first complete uh, CGI sequence. That's what they keep telling themselves. Uh, how how great it is. This is obviously the Genesis um, the Genesis sequence. Yes, it was ILM. Yeah, playing around with the CGI. And uh, although I and, have to say, 
what I have to look this up now because uh, Disney's The Black Cauldron, which is a terrible film. Oh no, that was '85. That was a few years yeah. later. That also had some uh, CG with the cauldron, but uh, never mind. Well, and we I don't remember when we actually talked about this, but we did talk about the fact that the the team and the guy who wrote the algorithm for the Genesis effect uh, is a is still a leader in particle effects uh, and works at Pixar and in fact is has done uh, did all the the Nemo water. And um, so any of the any of the big particle effects from from uh, all the Nemo films, and I think we talked about it relating to um, uh, Nemo and the octopus and the tank. Uh, there was something about that in a show we did when the the uh, Finding Dory came out um, about that because uh, Pixar released one of their um, particle effects uh, classes on um, Khan Academy. Khan Academy. Look at that. We bring it all the way back around on Khan Academy. You can still go take it. And this guy actually is introduced, the guy who did the Genesis effect on this movie. I think that's funny. It's almost like he is the Genesis of all of this work, right? He is. That's where it's him. Yeah, we're going to let that hang. <laughs> um, uh, so anyhow, uh, this is uh, the, the one big change that happened after, um, after the film was shot on test audiences and that has to do with the ending yeah really interesting which is funny because this was a secret that had been out for a while like i said you know roddenberry kind of uh was was miffed and he kind of spoiled it theoretically it was him that uh, spock was going to die at the end of this and it made people so mad and then when test audiences saw it they uh you know they seemed kind of down he said when the when the movie ended everybody just kind of quietly got up and walked out of the theater <laughs> It said it was like a funeral, which it was. It was just a funeral for Spock at the end of the movie. <laughs> but apparently people uh, just didn't have any joy in their hearts. And so they did this reshoot, much to the chagrin of uh, Meyer, who really was so adamantly opposed to doing it that he refused to actually have any part of any of the reshoots for any of the additional footage of uh, of the end when we see Spock's um, phaser, no, proton cannon coffin lying on planet Genesis. He he said, I am not, you know, why would I be a part of a, we just killed him. It's just cheating. And I don't want to be a part of that. And he also refused to be part of Star Trek 2 because of that, which is, I think, very funny, admirable well, in its own it, way, maybe. It's know. interesting. A few, a few the, the the rumor that it was Roddenberry was, was, that was confirmed. And it was confirmed by his assistant because she got in even more trouble by it. The <laughs> same day that he leaked it, she went to a conference, uh, to a, a fan conference, knowing that he had already leaked it earlier into uh, the media, which hadn't been able to actually print anything. And she said it on stage in front of a bunch of people. And then then everybody went crazy. And so she uh, said it was definitely him, but it could have been me. But anyway, we were of a team and uh, it, it was it was definitely he was uh, outwardly upset about this whole thing. But what was more interesting about that that last scene is that the way Bennett talks about it is that he said we he went to Nimoy as on the day they were shooting and he said, what can we do to leave the door open for a future? Right or what can we do to 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 establish a future here? And Nimoy knew what he what he meant. Like what what are we gonna right. what are we gonna do if we're gonna do another movie after this? And he said, I I I think I have it. I think I have it that it we don't have to think too hard about it. What if I just we just roll the camera? I'm gonna get down in front of 
DeForest, and I'm going to do a mind meld with him and just say, remember. And that's going to be the anchor. And Bennett says that was exactly what we needed. I didn't know how we were going to do it. I didn't know what the future was going to be, uh, if there was going to be some other Spock consciousness in a different actor's body, whatever it was. But at least we had an anchor. And then you cut to Kirk. And the interview with Kirk is, I don't know if I can take it seriously, because he appears (laughs) to be downright angry, saying that Nimoy and Bennett were in collusion. They knew the whole time, and they didn't want to tell me. And they just wanted me out of it, and they that that Spock was going to come back, and they just wanted to keep it a great big secret between the two of them. I don't know what to mean. What to <laughs> I think that was very funny. I think it's very funny too. And Bennett, when he talks about it, he says, you know, he says, I watch that scene, and I watch people stand up uh, and with tears in their eyes and applause in their hands, and I knew we had done the right thing. I knew we had done the right thing. And and he just can't, almost can't keep his composure, you know, even it was at the time of the interview I was watching 20 years later. And um, and he still tears up yeah. at the idea of Spock's funeral, which is an amazing sequence. Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah. Oh, one last little effects note before we move on. So ILM, I thought just thought it was interesting that... Um, you know they were they were keeping very busy around this period of time. They were doing this right after Empire Strikes Back, which was a big project for them. Um, and apparently, they had three big films coming in right after Empire. And so, ILM actually had to split their t- their team into three um, to handle Poltergeist, ET, and this. They were all wow. getting their effects done at the same time, which was quite interesting. Um, it, just imagining like. <laughs> Like these amazing films, like all getting put together uh, in uh, rooms time. next door to each other. Yeah, pretty wild. Oh, that's fantastic. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Oh, I need a submarine sound You effect. do, yes. The deep scene dive. This is, uh, we're going to dive into a scene that we think uh, actually is a great representation of the film and a portrayal of the characters and camera and all the great stuff about it. This one is, uh, we're interior in the rocky cavern that is Regula, the planetoid Regula. Kirk, Bone, Savick, and Terrell and Chekhov uh, follow the crew of the abandoned Regula 1 into the core of this Regula planetoid. Uh, David jumps them. Kirk has some emotions. Terrell and Chekhov have their SETI worm adventure. And Kirk and Khan have their first really great uh, monologue off. <laughs> uh, now, I, I was an advocate for this film, or for this scene in particular. Yes. Uh, and Because I, well, I really like it. If you look at it with your eyes crossed, it can be a, a touch soap operatic. Right. Well, because it is emotionally emotional pivots come hard and fast. That's something that, you know, Nicholas Meyer has talked about how he is a huge fan of opera and opera has these just big emotions. And so that's all through the film. I think that is a very um, just kind of a critical element of this story and how he chose to tell it, because I, I think you'll find that in a lot of scenes. This one for me is is great because it allows us to um, to complete in our minds a number of character arcs uh, or fill in some blanks that end up being important. First, we get to um, we get David jumping Kirk from behind, and you know they're un- they don't know of their relationship. They don't know who each other uh, is at this point. They have a, a fist fight, and uh, it's it's a bit of a slow fist fight, right? It's a long lingering, a series of three long lingering shots with fists, you know, kind of in the air. Well, and he's David's got a knife. He's like he does he's have like a knife. Slashing. Right. It's more of a slashing and protecting yourself sort of fight. 
Yes, slash Fight Club, right? And <laughs> uh, and and then we we have this immediate pivot to where's Doctor Marcus? I'm Doctor Marcus. Kirk realizes, oh my God, I get this is the first thing I have to deal with. This is my son. And then he sees Carol, and he hasn't seen her clearly in a while, but he has to r- normalize his worldview now that his son is this doctor who just tried to to knife him. But he's also having this the, the emotional sort of experience of seeing her again. And immediately he turns around and sees that, uh, you know, Terrell is and Chekhov are betraying them and right. they have phasers raised. And that happens so quickly uh, in this sequence that I find myself just riveted by him pinballing across this this hall, this passage in this cavern and being able to deliver all of the emotional resonance of each of these three discrete transitions. Where's Dr. Marcus? I'm Dr. Marcus. Jim! Is that David? Mother, he killed everybody we left behind. Well, of course he didn't. David, you're just making this harder. I'm afraid it's even harder than you think, Doctor. Please, don't move. Check out. I'm sorry, I don't know. Your Excellency, have you been listening? I have indeed, Captain. You have done well. Each of the character moments, like each of the little relationship scenes that you have here, we're not getting cheated out of any time spent in them. You know, we're getting enough time in each of them to to kind of get the emotional um pivot points that we go through before it kind of pivots again over to the next pivot point that we have to go through. And it moves very quickly, but the characters are are honest and they they hit all of those points. And it, it works and it, it makes great sense. And because of the pace of it, it just it just keeps things moving so effectively and uh, and quickly. It's just it's really an effective scene that really builds to a great moment between uh, Khan and Kirk as um, you know, we have uh, Terrell dead, Chekhov unconscious, um, one of uh, the Marcus's, uh, you know, teammates dead, the Genesis gone. You've got this just this great, you know, kind of closing monologue that Khan gives Kirk, which is just it's, you know, it's just a great kick in the teeth. Uh, and then, of course, ending with that fantastic uh, scream that Shatner, uh, only Shatner could scream that way and echo across the planetoid as well as he does. The Kirk transition, the second half of this scene, as soon as Khan is back on the radio, right? And first of all, we should point out that there is some incredibly good tension in this sequence and in all the sequences between Kirk and Khan, and yet they never did a scene together, right? It's all over speakerphone or, or, you know, Skype. Which is funny, Um, uh, just as a side note, um, it was pointed out late in the the, uh, process of... This whole production uh, that was pointed out to Nicholas Meyer, and because the you know I guess the execs were nervous that oh we don't have our our people meeting, and he's just like well I guess I never thought about it. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> but but you don't need it, and I think they realized you know we don't need to have them physically in the same room together because the the conversations they're going to have are going to be strong enough to carry it without them being in the same room. The pivot that Kirk takes, we get to see some things from his character that we haven't seen before. And that is really why uh, I love this sequence for him as a, as a character moment. Con bloodsucker. 
You're gonna have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you? Kirk. Kirk, you're still alive, my old friend. Still? Old friend. You've managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. When he says, um, you know, still old friend, and Khan takes Genesis, you you get to feel Kirk lose it for a little bit. You get to feel Kirk lose it because he doesn't know what to do next. He doesn't know uh, in that moment exactly how this is going to play out. And he is a character who always knows how it's going to play out. I mean, we had just seen in the Khan introduction, the Khan reveal, we have that fantastic submarine sequence where, uh, you know, he knows already the the codes uh, to take the, the Reliance shields down. And, and he's totally in control, and he has that wry smile. And here, Khan, uh, you know, you'll have to come down here to do it. You'll have to come down here. Uh, I, I find that is is some of the best Shatner work uh, in certainly in the film, uh, maybe in the series until we get to my favorite film. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. Well, it works really well as really solid cat and mouse, uh, you know, and it, and it's interesting because Khan always has kind of seemed like he's in charge, but he still gets really upset at Kirk when Kirk does things and and still manages to kind of dig him like when he uh, gets the codes for the Reliant and and takes their shields down and blasts them and everything. I mean, those are great moments. You know, you get uh, Khan getting really frustrated by Kirk. And this is that moment where it's almost like Khan has finally uh, is is finally willing to kind of take a breather, and he's just like, "No, you know what? I'm just going to leave you there," and that's that. And he he kills his radio, and that's that. And it's like, is has he finally learned his lesson? You know, earlier he's just like, "He tasks me, he tasks me. I must destroy him." And then this is that moment where he's finally passed it. And theoretically, they might actually get out. So it is a really great pivot, if not for the surprise that Kirk has up his sleeve, as we find out later. Right, right. Which is unclear at this point, when he's kind of lost control over the emotional exuberance of Khan, whether or not he had this in mind, right? The, the, the whole hours, not days thing. Um, I, at least it was unclear to me. Uh, whether or not he had this already kind of in the front of his mind that this is how he's going to be able to get out of this, right? Um, you know, while he's screaming. Uh, and it, the final scene, just in terms of an edit note on the script, Kirk yells, you know, he says, I'm going to leave you marooned for eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive. 
and that repeats, right? Buried alive. And Kirk, cut to Kirk, and we've been we've been moving in so slowly on Kirk's face, and he screams Khan, Khan. He does that great shriek. In the as it was written in the, at least the script I'm looking at, there Khan has one more line: uh, "Goodbye, Admiral O, and don't count on Enterprise. She can't move. My next act will be to blow her out of the heavens." And Kirk says, screams Khan again. Uh, I, I'm hmm. so glad they cut that. That's like Columbo. Oh, and one more thing, you know. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that they cut that line. It, it, I think it ends just perfectly hearing Khan echoing through the, the moon. Yeah, it's a beautiful end. And then you just, you know, you end, you know, you cut to the moon and then you just have that last lingering shot on Khan mm-hmm. as he just kind of sits there, um, just, you know, happy that he's won. It's, it's a great little, it's a great setup. A lot of great shots all through this. The uh, Gain Resher is the uh, the DP on this. And the camera work is pretty solid. I, I think one thing that um, Nicholas Meyer uses effectively throughout is, is moving uh, the camera in small ways. Nothing too big. Um, but you will get, um, like in throughout this scene, it's, it's mostly static shots, but every now and then as a character moves, the camera will like truck with them backward or forward, kind of keeping them, uh, in the same position as the camera moves. And then we'll get some tilts up and downs as the, um, as people move, but it's generally stable other than those few moments that I think really highlights some great tension, uh, especially toward the end as you get really nice, slow you already mentioned it with Con- or with Kirk at the end, how you kind of get that slow push in on his face. You also get the same thing with Khan toward the end there as, you're, as, as you kind of just this nice push in on him as he, um, as, as Kirk taunts him and then he decides that he's just going to take the Genesis. So just some really, really, um, I guess it's pretty clean, pretty um, standard camera work, but it's effective. You know, it's effective and it tells the story well. It's not distracting, no, and, no. and you know that's. I, I think that's a good thing. I, there are some that surprise me that I feel like they could. You know, you this sort of standard approach, the safe approach, is sort of misses opportunities for greater intensity, right? Terrell, when he pulls the phaser, we start with a close up on his face, and we have a tilt down to reveal the fra- the, the phaser in his hand, and and that feels like a, a safe kind of you know maybe early Hitchcockian reveal. They could have done more. We had more adventurous camera work in the motion picture. Um, same thing when Terrell kills himself. Chekhov is standing up, and Terrell is on the ground, and he kills himself in a wide two shot, and that seems like such a strange broadcast style of of you know a, a very tense moment uh, that that I wasn't I, I wasn't crazy about it ends up looking a little bit silly well it's interesting because if I recall that's essentially the exact same setup that they used um, when uh, Terrell first pulls out the the phaser and after um, David uh, goes to attack and Savick like throws him to the ground, um, and uh, Terrell's uh, phaser goes off. It blasts the, uh, you know, essentially the yeah, red shirt. The red shirt, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, the one random guy in the scene. Yeah. It blasts him, and uh, and he disappears. So I wonder if it, if the if ILM just said, okay, we're going to have two people get disintegrated by phaser shots. Let's just lock it off in this frame, and then we'll just be able to uh, pinpoint them and pull them out. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, it, yeah it, well, and speaking of very sort of pragmatic effect shots, the the zoom into Chekhov's ear model as the bug oh, yeah. crawls out, that was pretty effective I and love it, gross. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, they I, used it. It's essentially a crash zoom, right? You just it zooms so fast that you that almost you can't don't even see the cut. Exactly, right. you don't realize that you're all of a sudden looking at a model, and it's just a this giant ear model with that fantastically horrible SETI eel crawling right. out, covered in I guess it was raspberry jelly. <laughs> 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 Uh, Isn't it interesting? And, uh, you know, this I, I file this under, you know, the, the minutia of things to get upset about that don't seem to bother all that many people. But uh, here we go. The entire mantra of Star Trek is to seek out new life forms and new civilizations. And the first thing they do when they see this thing crawl out of Chekhov's ear alive, this alien life form that they've been ostensibly seeking out is to shoot it and, <laughs> and disappear it. <laughs> oh, wait, it's the only one we Oh, never mind. <laughs> Yeah, that, I didn't hear the phasers set to stun before they no, did that. No, I did not. I did not hear that. <laughs> I, so anyhow, uh, a note on lighting. I, I thought the the lighting on that um, uh, on Khan in particular is is really nice, and it's interesting because it's blue and green, right? It's it's a a really sort of uh, cool tone, and not it, it's not particularly villainous in yeah. this sequence. And yet they're the the crew of the Enterprise are inside Regula, which is a predominantly brown and red. Um, you know, arguably villainous uh, tones. Um, I, I don't know if they're making anything of that, but I find it really interesting setup. Yeah, that is kind of interesting, just the different color tones that they have going for them. Huh, I don't know. Didn't uh, know the blue-green blue, the blue -green looks really good on his hair, on Khan's hair, too. Yes, it does. As long as you have those white that locks. fantastic Mad, Mad Max hair. Totally. <laughs> it's like, do they get the wigs <laughs> flown in from Australia? Well, and, and thank God Robert Fletcher updated the costumes. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, the uniforms are great and, and, you know, ended up inspiring, you know, many, many more uh, uh, evolutions of this particular costume. It does, and I think another anchor in this scene, uh, it does point out uh, the Roddenberry departure. Uh, Roddenberry hated obvious rank insignia. He hated the overly sort of militarization of Starfleet, right? That wasn't the point of Starfleet. It was exploratory. This was, you know, this whole guns and military and rank, that that was really frustrating to him. And yet here we are in this scene that is so obviously uh, the, the public servant science uh, division versus the military of, of Starfleet. Um, there, there is, I, I think, in this scene, probably no more uh, unsubtle thumb in the, the eye to, to Roddenberry you know, than we have right here. You know, it's so funny because I find myself really upset when I am in love with a franchise and somebody who comes in um, to, to work in that franchise who changes it up because they just want to try something different. And it really bothers me. I really am mad at them and I hate them for it. And, uh, you know, and it's it's one of those weird things where I think that in this particular case that the people involved made all the right decisions because I also really just love these new costumes. And it really kind of shifted a direction for the whole franchise in all of its uh, platforms because they really kind of took to it everywhere. And um, I, I think it's a great uh, modification to have made despite the fact that it did not fit with Roddenberry's original vision. So I find it so interesting that I can be bothered so much when it's uh, not something that I like, though, you know? Um, oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, and, and speaking of things like that, James Horner, you know, he came in and didn't do any connection um, musically with uh, Alexander Courage and any of his themes or Jerry Goldsmith and any of his themes. But man, this is like, I think, one of the iconic Star Wars or Star, Wars, Star Trek scores 
Uh, it's just so beautiful. It's, it's one of, I think, James Horner's best scores. I mean, it's just a stunning soundtrack to listen to. Amazing horn work. Amazing uh, just uh, just the, the way that he kind of develops the music that does feel very seafaring. Um, I really, really enjoy it. And, and the music that he plays in this scene, it's not like the big themes, but it's got a lot of tension in it. Well, there are, and, and the way Horner talks about it, you know, there are two or three themes that he, he says, you know, I, I feel like anything more than that, and, you, you know, people can't keep track of them. So really, we just want to create these motifs and just use them in all kinds of different ways, but that are fairly obvious. So you can really connect, you know, what these things, you know, what these things mean. And the, you know, we had eight French horns uh, playing that loud burst of con, right? That's the con motif. It's not even a theme, he says. It's just just this this motif that we play over and over. But when we do that next to Kirk's Enterprise theme, which is a much more lyrical, melodic piece, uh, it becomes... A, a musical conversation that's happening every time we cut between the Reliant and the Enterprise uh, in in their duels across um, you know across space and and it was it was super intentional. I love that idea of a musical conversation between these characters, not just blaring you know one giant piece of music, but something that really um, works well. I think this is just a great example of that. Uh, but I I do want to remind you go listen to the closing uh, music of this score and you'll hear every one of those themes right all the way i mean it's all uh woven right in after um uh, amazing grace uh during the the funeral you get all of the history of star 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 trek music sure and i guess yeah end credits that's always its own thing i guess i meant in context of the actual film but I mean, that's that's kind of like what Michael Giacchino does also when we get to him. You know, he'll he doesn't do anything with any of the original stuff, except he'll throw it in at the end credits. Well, yeah. And this in this case, it's a little bit of a crossover because it's not quite the end credits yet. This is this. He needed some sort of musical cue to get us into Spock doing the space final frontier. Yeah, thing. It's the prologue now slash right. epilogue. Right. And when, <laughs> and it's it is really it, it, it is beautiful before the and the, you know. Yeah. the main credits start. Right, right, right. So um, I, I really, back to this, the, to the scene in particular, uh, you know, that we've got two little bursts of music led by horns, first when Terrell and Chekhov turn on the crew, uh, and second, and then it goes to silence, and then second when Khan begins his final speech. And uh, the, the generally large sort of void of music, uh, it makes this sequence really haunting when it does come in, and, and you hear that buried alive, buried alive. It's it's just beautiful. Yeah, great sound work with the echoing voices and everything, and the mm-hmm. echoing of the SETI eel screams when they <laughs> come in and everything. Oh. I will say there's one moment in this uh, sequence that uh, or the scene that we ended up picking that that I do roll my eyes out a bit. And it it speaks to what we've talked about um, a number of times when we go to like Steven Spielberg's films or things like that, where the world of the film only exists within the frame. Anything outside of that frame is not actually there. (laughs) And this is like, you know, David's jump scare when, you know, we just cut from Kirk and McCoy looking at the Genesis um, on that side of the room and then we cut to the other side as Kirk is walking back to the other group and just out of frame David comes flying in and attacks him and it's just like where where was he was he like sitting on top of the Genesis device was he in the case <laughs> like he would have been in the frame it's it's so is obviously uh you know just a a poor example of a, a jump scare um but that's that type of filmmaking where it's like the, the world doesn't exist if it's not inside this frame the uh, we first started talking about this uh, in 
on December second, two thousand eleven. Was that our uh, uh, that was last where we coined, go, No, it was uh, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and that's when we first got really upset about it. We also coined the Spielberg spank. I, that's another that's one right. that you'll that's find right. in, the, in the glossary. Yeah, Dior de la Seine. I thought it was the uh, the uh, um, when we were talking about the X marks the spot scene in Last Crusade. Or no, <laughs> it was talk about that. It was at the beginning of it was the beginning of Crystal Skull. When he's in the trunk or something, and and that's but right. we don't see, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> both of them. She's yeah, that's a close up on what's her name. Anyway, yep. yes, it, it's ridiculous, <laughs> and it happens all the time, and it definitely happens here with poor David uh, getting yes. made to look like a doofus. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to talk about here? I think we have dived deeply, and the scene has been dove. Doven. Uh, any other cast or crew highlights? We've talked about uh, uh, Harv and Nick Meyer and uh, uh, anybody else that jumps out at you that you want to... You know, I, I feel like, I mean, we're kind of not touching on everybody. Uh, we're trying to lighten that a little bit. But uh, you know, we we should at least, you know, I mean, Shatner, Nimoy, uh, Kelly, uh, James Duan, uh, Koenig. Is it Koenig? Koenig? Koenig. Koenig. I, I, I've uh, well, I've got a friend with that last name and it's pronounced King. So it's like, it's one of those weird last names. Oh. I know. Uh, wow. But Takei, uh, Nichols, it's like that, that fantastic group of people that just really kind of make the the core team. I mean, they're just all wonderful. And I just love them in, in the films, uh, doing everything that they do. And we haven't once yet said the words Kobayashi Maru. We haven't said Kobayashi Maru or uh, Kirstie Alley or Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> we, have we haven't actually said either. Ricardo Montalban. Uh, I do have one thing to say specifically about Ricardo Montalban. Yes, that is his chest. Yeah, apparently that is the the question that uh, Nicholas Myers asked more than anything <laughs> else, which I don't know if I believe. I think he perpetuates that myth just so he can talk about mm-hmm. uh, Montalban's uh, chest more often. You know who tells stories like that? Guys who are jealous of Ricardo Montalban's chest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like me. Apparently so. Look how quickly I like to bring that up. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, it, it is. It is a fantastic casting. You know, we haven't talked about the one big thing, and this was the scene that you actually wanted to talk about, which is the, the actual talking through the glass sequence, oh. uh, the death of Spock, and um, just how important that that sequence is in terms of, again, the character arc uh, and, and how well Nimoy pulls that off. It's just beautiful. And it's, it was, uh, it's funny because you hear, it, there's, this, there's the film, and you get so much emotion out of the film, and then you read the stories. And it's like it, you know, sometimes the stories just really take so much out of the moments of the film because it's like Nimoy didn't really want to be in the movie, and they had to twist his <laughs> arm and said, "Hey, what if we give you a really good death scene?" He's like, "Oh, maybe I'm interested. Let me know more." And it's like this is like this is how these backroom deals work, and it's like oh, I don't want to know that. I just want to know that it was just written because it was a perfect way to tell this story. Probably hosting the wrong podcast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who needs all this extra behind-the-scenes info about these movies? <laughs> the 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 thing that I I like so much about that um, that, that sequence in particular, the the Nimoy sequence, and and the way, and I I don't know. I'm honestly I love that um, that they they came back and did the reshoot. I love that there's the door that's open for the next movie, and I I. I'm very attached to that. But I also, I love what Meyer was trying to do. And when he tells this story of the day they shot that, uh, that he's he's watching Leonard do his thing and he's watching Shatner. And then he looks around and everybody on the crew is in tears. 
as they're shooting the scene. And he says, why are, why is everybody crying? <laughs> it amazes me that a guy who is that disconnected from the actual like heart of the franchise can turn out something that ends up being a favorite of so many diehards of the same franchise. Yeah. When you listen to him talk, he just sounds so disconnected from it all. And, you know, it's just, you know, and I don't want to say dismissive because he doesn't seem quite dismissive, but he's really close. <laughs> He's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. just like, I mean, and I get his point. He's just like, uh, you know, I don't get the privilege to to have those emotions when I'm the artist. It, it's and a little arrogant too. I don't get to have those emotions because I am the artist who has to make those emotions happen for everybody else. It's oh, for crying out loud! Like, I mean, that, that is the most head slappingly. I mean, like egomaniacal thing to say. Those aren't ex- his exact words, but you know, no, I'm paraphrasing no. what you know essentially he was saying. So, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Oh, uh, this film, uh, this film didn't uh, didn't do well in the big awards. Not in uh, what you would call like the Oscars or the... <laughs> what you might call the, quote, Oscars. <laughs> Those big <laughs> awards. Um, but it at least found its audience. This is a film that uh, at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, um, it did win the Saturn Award for Best Actor, William Shatner, Best Director, Nicholas Meyer. Um, and then many years later in 2010 it actually won as a part of the best dvd collection uh the saturn award for that um then it also was nominated for best science fiction film um, best supporting actor for a walter koenig best supporting actress kirstie alley best writing jack b sowards best costumes robert fletcher and best makeup werner kepler and james lee mccoy it only won like i said best actor and best director uh, I was surprised that uh, Best Supporting Actor uh, um, Leonard Nimoy wasn't up there, but apparently not. Apparently he wasn't good enough. So, um, But E.T. was the one who, uh, I believe, took most of the big awards away from it, So, which I guess I can understand. Yeah, but it was a big, yeah. like, this was the five nominees for Best Science Fiction Film, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Blade Runner, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Tron, Maybe not a great film, but really interesting. And then a film I've never heard of, Endangered Species, which I'm like, what is that film? Wow. Have you ever heard of that one? No, I've never heard it's of it. It's an that. Alan Rudolph film, which, what? yeah, I know. It's about a retired New York cop on vacation in America's West who is drawn into a female sheriff's investigation of a mysterious series of cattle killings. Oh my God, I have seen this movie. This is the cow, this is the, the cow stealing movie. Oh man. What? Yes, they what? think aliens are stealing cows and leaving their dead carcasses on the ground. And uh, then they find out that it's the government like stealing them with helicopters and something. I totally watched this in Paraguay in Spanish on uh, on, on Paraguayan TV. <laughs> wow, this was... Uh, Joe Beth Williams was in uh-huh. this. Robert Same Urich, year. Paul Dooley, Hoyt Axton, wow. Peter Coyote. Hoyt Axton. Yeah. Nope. Never heard of it. Holy cow. Not even a thing. I <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> wow. Well, well, I, I wow. need to watch All this right. one Indigenous again in English. Put this on the list. Yeah. That's really funny. But it's interesting. The Road Warrior um did not it did get nominated for Best International Film, but not hmm. Best Science Fiction Film. How did it do with the, the box office? As you said, the the production was supervised by Paramount's television unit instead of the theatrical division. And with a relatively new director at the helm, they the team behind Wrath of Khan put the meager $12 million budget, 
or 29.8 million in today's dollars uh, to good use. I think we talked about last uh, week Star Trek or Star Trek. Uh, gosh, what, what did it balloon to? Like 46 million, something like that. So this yeah. is a huge drop yeah. in budget. Um, as a side note, they did actually start with an $8.5 million budget, but the studio was so happy after seeing the first couple weeks of dailies that they did give uh, Nicholas Meyer and his team a little more money. The movie was released June 4th, 1982, the same day as Poltergeist, Hanky Panky with Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner, and uh, Disney's Bambi reissue. It was number one at the box office when it opened, but unfortunately, it was knocked down to number two just the following week when E.T. opened. And as we've talked about on the show uh, before, it crushed everything else. Um, Khan went on to make $78.9 million domestically and $16.9 million internationally for a total gross of $95.8 million or $238.5 million in today's dollars. This gave the movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.9 million and ensured that it wouldn't be long before audiences got to see what happened to Spock on the Genesis planet. That sort of leads us as we as we wrap up here to what this film represents as a as a part of the the original series cast franchise, right? This is uh, insofar as the f- you know motion picture was the first movie. This is the first part of a trilogy, right? A narrative trilogy, uh, including uh, the search for Spock and the voyage home, and. Uh, you know, when you look at them as as a as that, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see how how it plays out. They are fairly different in tone uh, as we go through the three, right? Uh, and this one, uh, for me, certainly represents my my favorite. It is closest to my style of of you know science fiction filmmaking that I I really am attracted to and love and and uh, you know it was it was great to go back and re rank it uh, and just realize how much I would rather watch this than so many other movies. Yeah, uh, absolutely. What, do you, what what'd you learn? What'd you learn after watching this again? Uh, there's so much more detail in this story than I remember. Um, just lots of little bits and pieces. And I, I really did enjoy going back to Space Eat and watching that first because it just kind of helped me set up this world a little more and reminded me of all of those things. So when when Khan uh, has that conversation, when, when Chekhov and Terrell first discover him, um, I was able to kind of put all that into a better context. Um, but I, you know, I just think that there was just so much um, excitement built into this film that it's really great. There are questions that I have that I would say, you know, does it make it any worse of a film? I don't think so. I mean, questions like, okay, when Chekhov and Terrell first realize that it's um, that they're on the Botany Bay and uh, this is where Khan is, why don't they just say, hey, beam us up? And just get beamed out real quick instead of running all over the planet again. You know, questions like that. That's like, you know, there's probably some logic that they could have done. But I think what works so well in a a film like this is the script is effective. It moves quickly. And if those are the sorts of questions that pop up years after having watched this uh, countless times... I think they did a really good job with it. So I, it, it goes to show that you don't need a gigantic budget to make something really effective as long as you have storytellers and a team behind them who know how to, um, to kind of push it into place and make it happen. You know, it's interesting, your comment, uh, the kinds of things like, why didn't they just say, beam me up? Those are the kinds of things that I think uh, an, a real Star Wars or Star Trek aficionado uh, behind the script would have fixed. 
because it's so easy to fix. Yeah. And there are so many examples of fixing it in the original series uh, that it's it's ridiculous that they didn't fix it. There are excuses that they that one line would have fixed that sure. and it would make it so you don't think about it again. And I think that's the the difference that we have, you know, that we get in Nick Meyer and Harv Bennett who were still learning the ropes. And I think that once we once once they do learn the ropes, they get progressively better um, at, at their work together, and we'll come back around to some of that conversation uh, later. We because Nicholas Meyer will certainly talk about in this series again, and Harv Meyer. I mean, he was on all the way through this. Uh, yeah, Harv, <laughs> no, he and Nicholas they got to <laughs> he and Nicholas hooked up. Uh, yeah, Harv Bennett. Um, he was on through um, through all the original cast films, right? He's he's uh, around for for there is a yeah, they, they refer five. to it as as the Harv Bennett generation. Oh, okay, there you go. Like he's he's part of an epoch of Star Trek management. He's you know he's the Kevin Feige right of of early Star Trek. Yeah, interesting, very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So uh, I think we should probably get right to the business of ranking. Don't you I think? think we should. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our stack ranking. But if you swipe over in your show notes, you'll find this film. Just tap on Flickchart and you'll jump right to the Flickchart page. You can add it to your list. Where do we start? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan or Hot Fuzz. Khan, baby. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Khan, baby. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Star Trek II or Seven Samurai. Star Trek II. (laughs) Yeah, Star Trek 2. That is an amusing comparison. It is. Star Trek... This, okay, this is be an interesting one. Star Trek 2 or Aliens? <laughs> These are so close on my chart, um, but Aliens takes it for me. I think we're going to have to go to the mat. Yeah. It's a tough one. This is a tough Jeez. one. It really, really is, Andy. See, these didn't come up when I had to rank them when I did it on my personal <laughs> ranking. This, this would have this stymied me. It's quite possible I would have just left the browser tab open and walked away. <laughs> just said, I'm not, I'm not letting you win today, Flick Chart. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's not, uh, not how I'd like to, to play Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. All right. Let's do it then. One, One two, two, three. Scissors. scissors paper, paper. Rock. rock. Paper. Rock. Okay. <laughs> it is what it, it is. It is what it is. Star Trek Two or The Shining. Oh, the Star Trek. Star II. Trek Two, please. Star Trek Two or The Innocents. More Star Trek Two, please. Star Trek Two, yeah. Star Trek Two or The Fisher King. That hasn't popped up in a while. Star Trek Two. Yeah, I'm gonna say Star Trek Two. Star Trek Two or One Hundred One Dalmatians. Those are some oh, cute Star puppies. Yeah, cute puppies, cute Pete. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Star Trek 2. Yes. Give me the give me the SETI war SETI eels. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek 2 for me. Uh Star Trek 2 or Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Ooh. I gotta do Star Wars. Uh, Star Trek. Star Trek 2, please. Yeah, Star Trek 2. Well, Pete, that puts Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, at number 40 on our chart out of 311 movies. Man, 40, that felt like it was climbing much higher than that much more quickly. It's because of Aliens. It, uh, it oh. got smacked down by the Queen. Okay, so what did this? Uh, what's this do on your personal flick chart? It, I actually uh, did a re-rank on that one uh, after re-watching it, and it, it jumped up a, a few hundred spots. It landed at uh, number 49 out of 3809. No, I, um, I, it 
landed at number 17 out of uh, 996. Uh, I think that means it's technically higher on my chart than it is on your chart. What? Yeah. Oh, maybe it is. Because I'm, I'm at a 3,800. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But regardless, we're both, it, it, it's in like we're the... We're both clearly fans. Yeah, yeah. We're both big fans of this one. There is still a Star Trek movie above it. I, which I'm really curious about. I, I can't wait to talk about The Final <laughs> Frontier. So, <laughs> Yep, that's the one. Absolutely. Hands down. Generations. You there got you go. it. The whole thing. So now, but did I, I forgot to ask earlier. Um, so there's a director's cut of this out there now. Did you watch that? Have you seen it? Yeah, I can't. I, that's it's on the that's the iTunes version that you can get. It's through iTunes extras. It plays the the director's cut, which I guess and, is only like three extra minutes or something with with uh, with um, Scotty's nephew, right? Uh, and I couldn't tell you anymore because it's the only version that I've watched. I can't tell you where those start and end, huh. but there there's nothing in there that that I recall makes a, a massive amount of difference. Uh, apart from the fact that it makes me want to watch uh, Escape from Witch Mountain. Yeah, right. Uh, again. <laughs> so I was, I was looking at him like, why do I recognize that kid? Yep. He, what's he in? And then he, and he dies. What's, well, who is this kid? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was like, oh, he's the director's cut kid. And the Escape yeah. from Witch Mountain kid. Yeah. Yep, that's it. I, I'm assuming for you that this is a big old five star and a heart. This is, absolutely. Letterboxd. Five yeah. and heart. Five and a heart for me, too. Hardcore. Letterboxd.com slash the next reel. Uh, you should definitely uh, friend us up over there. If you're on the letterbox, if you keep your diary, you should check it out. There you go. All right. Where do we go from here? Well, we're going to be uh, just uh, taking a little trip back to Genesis um, next week with Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. As we find out, did Spock die? Is he still alive? What's going on on this strange planet? Oh, look. There's a cantina here, too. <laughs> This has been a lot of fun, Andy. I am really enjoying Star Trekking with you. Uh, this is uh, we should have done this a long time ago. Yes, indeed. And here we are. And here we are. That's right, everybody. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Downloading this uh, and listening to this conversation. You know, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to go first. <laughs> take it away. <laughs> I'm going to take it away because mine's a little bit longer. I, I think, think it is, yours. yes. I'm pretty excited about this one. This is uh, the, the two-star because there aren't very many one-stars. Uh, I, I went with a two-star because of the, the pithy title. Are you ready I for this? I can't wait. The Wrath of Khan, No Khan Do. Whoa. Oh. <sighs> That's like if a if a if a title with a colon has another colon. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. I saw this film when it was released and loved it. I wanted to like it when I watched it again through Amazon Prime. The film has not aged well. Spoilers ahead. The characters are less substantial than in the late 1960 series. Mostly the characters are cameos of themselves. Cameos? Huh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you know what cameo means. <laughs> the plot is potentially interesting. Khan attempts revenge on Kirk, but the plot pacing is glacially slow. The side plot of Kirk's ex-wife and his son is a caricature of a good relationship gone bad. 
The special effects are tawdry. Tawdry. Why? So much of the entire film is, hey, guys, look what we can do. Yeah? Should you watch it? Yes. Watch the entire film corpus and don't skip the best film in the series, Galaxy Quest. (laughs) Ah, true fans. Buried alive. (laughs) Well, I've got a one star, Pete, by Kevin Bringman, who starts it it off by saying, William Shatner is as good as he ever has been. (laughs) I give it all the stars. William Shatner is as good as he ever has been. Lenord Nemony, Walter Koenig, and Scooty, and Mr. Sulu, and a newcomer Christy Alley are extremely great. And so I will give it one. <laughs> this is why I love Amazon reviews. Oh God, that's so good. So good. Thank you, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.